Well, praise the Lord, and uh, welcome everyone again, and uh, we appreciate you being here with us, and those are, that are watching, welcome all you, what does uh, Alan say, Alan Taylor, all you world changers, yes, I love it, you guys are, so if you have, uh, if you've grown since Sunday, in three days, if you've been praying, you've grown for the last three days, just going into that place. You and I don't know, for us, for us, there's no such thing as maintenance. Maintenance is... Uh, for us revivalists, it's called uh, being becoming sterile. The moment that you're just maintaining, you're not going forward. But every day that you enter into your prayer closet, every day, no matter how insignificant it feels, you're growing. Something is happening in the spirit. You were born with a perfect image. Now that image has to grow. It has to grow. It has to grow. It doesn't grow on its own. You've got to steward it. But after 25 years, I tell you what, I can feel every day that we're getting... You know, Gary talks about the kingdom of God at hand. At hand means it's close enough. Revival is at hand. I can feel it. Mainly because he's found a group that will steward this revival and not, not fail where others have laid it down. This baton has been passed in Scripture. Hallelujah. Every day, every single day, I promise I can feel it getting closer. Hallelujah. I've enjoyed my office here recently some. We've got half a house, and then when you've got grandkids for a week because their parents are out of state, then I've got a little bit less than half of a house, little tiny. So I just, when I get up at 5, just make my coffee and just come right on over. So, hallelujah. So I found out he, st he still comes in that office early in the morning. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. It's really good. Praise God. Well, a couple of months ago, we had this up-and-coming legend of a teacher called Mike Church. <laughs> and uh, so when, I, when he was saying goodbye, I said, well, get, get in touch with me in a couple months, and we'll have you back down. So he did. And he's here. And uh, so would you welcome my good friend, teacher, uh, who meditates the word. He really meditates the word. You'll, you'll listen close. If you listen close, you'll really learn something. Hallelujah. He's, uh, he's one of those meditators. You know, we got a Homer's a meditator. You're a meditator if you're, if you're meditating the word on a continual basis so come on Mike and uh, hallelujah praise God 
Hello, hello. Does it sound like it's working? Amen. All right. Thank you, sir. Oh, yeah. I got it. Amen. Hallelujah. Guess you can open up to Luke 16 for me. You guys love being saved? Oh, gosh. It, you know, the, the world, you know, sometimes you look at the world and you say, how did they endure it, you know, being sinners? Well, the answer is they don't endure it. <clears throat> enduring means you're coming out the other side. They're, you know, people in hell, they're not enduring hell because um, there is no coming out the other side of that. Hallelujah, Jesus. Well, <coughs> I, uh, I do a lot of confessing. If you're not speaking it, you're not going to have it. You know, I <coughs> you know, hope you guys are keeping your blueprint, speaking it regularly. I, I do my regular blueprint for me once a week. Um, and then, of course, I do healing almost every day. And then at night, I'll do another time where it's kind of supplemental confessions um, as, as the day goes, like in prayer time, I'll get the ones um, in worship time on what I should confess. So one I did last night, um, knowing I was coming here, was I stay in the spirit because I love you guys. Not revert to the natural soul, then it's about me. If I say what I want to say, it's about me. I stay in the spirit because I love you guys. So I would just say that, and I like doing them three times. So I stay in the spirit because I, I think this was one I did three. Some I do just one time. Others I'll do it three times over and over to, to build that image. And I was doing that last night. And I bet you, I'm not a betting man. If I was, I'd bet you a million dollars. I had the same experience he had where he said a few months ago where he thought he could walk with the Lord, you know, and minister and still kind of have a life. But it doesn't work that way. He, when I was saying that confession, I stay in the spirit because I love you guys, he pulled me over to some place and he, and he wasn't letting me go back. He, 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 God tricks you. He, uh, he says, he gives you a revelation and your spirit receives it plainly. John 16, you, you, you're born again. You have a capacity to receive it. You see it plainly. But of course, you're inside a natural soul that cannot uh, see it plainly. Um, you know, so when he pulls you over to this place, you're receiving it, and your natural soul doesn't quite, it doesn't expect it, it doesn't see it like it really is. But I got a taste, and it, it was just more than I could ask or think. He, he woos you to a place, snatches you over, and then he, it's like a total kidnapping. He doesn't let you go back. You're in the spirit. You cannot go back to the natural soul. And it's like he's, he forces you. And the reason I say force is because that's what it feels like, but it's what we've been choosing all these days, months, and years by giving ourselves over to him. And it's, it's wonderfully scary. It is abs that was absolutely the most wonderful feeling I ever had. Scary in a sense, but a wonderful scary. Not bad confession scary. Amen? But uh, So yeah, that's amazing. So you don't get your life back. You don't do nine to five minister. Oh, I flowed with the spirit. And then get some kind of idea of a life back. Nope. Snatches you over and he keeps you there. Um, but it's, gosh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And, you know, 
So it's like, you know, God, I want to marry you. And he's like, okay, you can marry me, but I come with a billion children. You know, it's a total package deal. So I can't love God and not love you, which means up here, I can't say what I want to say, do what I want to do, because that would be not loving you. So I'm going to follow him, and if you all just say, Lord, help him, uh, um, I'll take that in Jesus' name. And camera, are we, are we live back this way now? Oh, okay, good. Very good. So hello, all people on the camera, um, even you, Alabama. Um, I can't believe you guys let Homer wear Alabama shirt in here. Notice they did it when you were gone. Uh, I can't tell you. Uh, but I, I have a confession to make. I love their quarterback, so, I mean, they're already kicking me out of Gator Nation for that anyway. <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, well, I believe I know where we want to start. I think we're going to go a lot of different places today. End up in um, Hebrews and First John, I believe. But let's get something wonderful out of um, Luke 16. And, of course, you guys know this by heart. And we'll start with uh, verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes. So, of course, isn't that interesting? He has eyes in hell, but I thought his body was on earth. So that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Let's keep reading. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger. So now the spirit has fingers, right? The spirit has eyes. The spirit has fingers. If we resurrect these people back into their bodies, of course, their bodies in the grave have fingers, have eyes. You resurrect the spirit back into the body. Spiritual eyes go inside the natural eyes. The spiritual finger goes inside the natural finger. And then, of course, he says, and cool my tongue, spiritual tongue. If you resurrect, this man goes back into his physical tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. Interesting, tormented um, emotions. That means the spirit has a soul, the spiritual soul, the spiritual mind, will, and emotions. So if we resurrect these, this man back into his body, that spiritual soul, that spiritual mind, it's going to go right back into a natural mind. You know, so we, we really, my, and I don't remember when I finally understood this. It's been a long time ago. But my revelation changed after that. This was a huge turning point in understanding how to transform to the word of God. So you have a spiritual soul inside a natural soul. And, of course, you and I are born again, which means we have a spiritual soul with life capacity to know and understand God, but it's still inside a natural soul that cannot receive from God. 
if you remember when I was here before, you know, picture two-dimensional plain flat TV screen. You know, you can go left and right, but there's absolutely no depth. If anybody lived in this land, they would have no concept um, of, de of depth whatsoever. You know, so as I say all the time, is this flat two-dimensional uh, screen of your natural soul that we all have right in this room, it will legalize the grace, it'll greasify the grace, and don't always think to the extreme legalism or to the extreme greasy. It could be very subtle. Now, people in this room, um, certainly with those of us who are mature, if there's any deal-breaker people, I'm not really talking to you, you know, you got to stop that, period. But beyond that, this legalism and this greasy grace, very, very subtle, but that's all it can know. It cannot, it has no comprehension. You know, if you go up to your natural soul and say you're a child of God, it's, I call the natural soul the entity. Because when your natural soul has thoughts, they're not like, oh, I'm Mike Church's thought. No, he thinks as me. And if you cannot tell the difference between your spiritual soul and your natural soul, I assure you the devil's got all next week planned out for you. Now, anybody remember the game show, To Tell the Truth? Old game show from like back in the 70s? They, they have a new one now. I, I can't speak to that one. But the old one, the, the Lord uses that as a parable with me. Because if you remember how that game show went, is, and of course this is before YouTube and Google, where you didn't really know who people were. So you'd have a guy come out and say, I'm John Smith, I'm a famous architect, I designed the Eiffel Tower. But then another guy will come out and say, I'm John Smith, I'm a famous architect, I designed the Eiffel Tower. And the point of the show is then the panelists had to come on and figure out which one was the real John Smith. Well, that's what you and I have to do, is you have to figure out what is the real you. Are you the one who has the spiritual mind and operates out of a spiritual mind? Or are you going to operate out of the natural mind? Um, and, that, and if you can't uh, tell that difference, you're going to have a big problem. You know, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit, so you can tell which one you're operating out of. Now, let's jump real quick over to Mark 4 to get something out of there. I just want to get a little bit of a foundation before I say something that uh, may cause you to throw a bunch of rocks at me. No. It won't, it won't be that bad. <laughs> Mark 4, parable of the sower. I absolutely love this parable. And we're going to start with 21 just because I love this uh, candle. Um, Mark 4, 21. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what you hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that has, to him shall be given. And he that has not, from him shall be taken even that which he has. So we have the same thing as I have been talking about. We have the spiritual mind 
in the natural mind, if you have ears to hear out of your spiritual mind, if you measure the word of God according to your spirit that has a capacity to know it, and it has a capacity to know it. Remember before when I did the three-dimensional basketball? If you take a three-dimensional basketball and pass it through that two-dimensional screen that has no depth, it can only legalize the grace or greaseify, and it's going to think it knows, oh, I know what a child of God is, but it doesn't know. Because you're an actually 3D person. You're an actual child of God. You're more than a collection of thoughts. But if you pass that basketball through the flat land of the natural soul, you know, when you, the basketball first touches it, that little dot appears. And then as the pa basketball is passing through, you know, the cir circle gets bigger. And then as the ball gets past the halfway point, the circle gets smaller until it, as it's leaving that two-dimensional plane, there's a little dot, and then it goes away. So a basketball to somebody out of the natural soul, and of course I'm using that as a parable, grace, righteousness, mercy, any, any word you want that should be understood from the spiritual mind when it's understood in a form of religion out of the natural mind, it, it has no comprehension of what it actually is. So we know what a basketball is in three dimensions, but you know, a little dot that expands into a big circle, gets to a smaller circle and disappears, that's what the natural mind is going to think, grace, mercy, and righteousness. It's going to swear on a stack of Bibles. It knows them, but it does not know them. Now, if that plays out in your life at the worst, it'll take your salvation. Even that which he, think, which he has will be taken away. You think you're with God or going into God, and you're going out of God. But if you can measure it, if you learn how to measure out of your spiritual mind, then more will be given. You'll go on with God. You'll realize you're a three-dimensional person. God wants to give you three-dimensional things. Um, and on that note, let's run over to 1 Corinthians 2. And you have a capacity to know them and transform to every bit of them. Actually become a child of God. For God so loved, he sent his son, John 3, 1 John 3, behold what manner of love we've received, we've become sons. So how do you grow up as a son, mature in that love of God? Because listen, 1 Corinthians 13, the only way to get rid of the child who has the childish thoughts, who, who operates out of the natural soul, the puff upness of the natural soul, the only way to get rid of that child is to grow up. You know, it, it fascinates me that who I was at 8 years old or 12 years old, that kid is gone. I mean, he is totally gone. You know, when you grow up, that's the only way to get rid of the kid is grow up. That's the only way. So 1 Corinthians 2. Now, I'm not going to go all through down here. Of course, it's fantastic stuff. I absolutely love it. But we're just going to get right to something. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 2, 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual people, comparing three-dimensional basketballs with three-dimensional, like if you're a three-dimensional thing, you can understand a three-dimensional basketball. 
You're a three-dimensional actual child of God, so when God wants to talk to you about his three-dimensional grace, if you know how to separate spirit from soul, your, your natural soul will not stop you with its being trapped in that two dimensions, and you can actually receive and transform to the three-dimensional thing. He wants to give a three-dimensional child of God, an actual child. Remember, actual love. For God so loved, he sent an actual son to make us actual sons so we can mature, actually transform three dimensions to all these things, not be stuck in the two-dimensional natural soul because all it will do is legalize the grace and greaseify the grace. And listen, you're lucky if you just stay trapped in a form of religion, but you keep the deal-breaker conscience, meaning you don't allow anything that destroys the image. You'll make heaven, but let me tell you, if you don't go on past the entrance of doing away with those things and clear out everything, you still have within you the capacity for it to be all the way unwound and you taken all the way out of your salvation. You know, which was the, the Hebrews' problem, is they never followed their high priest who learned obedience through the things he suffered, and those Hebrews were supposed to learn obedience through the things they suffered and follow their high priest, but because they never went on to maturity, they were staying right there at the door of salvation, and therefore two-dimensional religion, and in their case, um, the Pharisees under the law, all they did was just grab them and can yank them right back out. But you, that's why you have to keep going on. And, um, and of course, Bronk preaches it so well that coming down through Hebrews 6 of why you can't um, repent when, you know, if you're falling away, you can't renew yourself unto redemption because if you're always going south, you can't be going north. So if you're always going out of God, I call it repenting backwards, going back to the law for salvation. Whoop, Jesus goes back up on that cross where you're concerned. You know, um, another way to look at it is the law killed you. Jesus paid the price and you rose with him to a new life. But if you build that law again, all you're doing is building the judicial system that right when you're done building it, it's going to drop the gavel on you and say, you're doomed, buddy. My God, it's already killed you. Jesus has already paid the price. Go on with him. You know, oh, God. Hallelujah. I, I have some other things to say about that, but I'm not even going to wrap my words around that. Um, so back to 1 Corinthians 2, 13. Which things also we speak? So Paul's saying, I speak three-dimensional things, spiritual things to spiritual people. But he's saying, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, meaning not natural soul words, not the way the natural soul understands. Yes, he still has to use the native tongue, but what he's communicating through the, the same words the natural soul would use if you're speaking out of the natural soul, he's communicating the mind of Christ. He's comparing spiritual things to spiritual people. So your faith does not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Earlier in the chapter, he says, I don't speak with the enticing words of man's wisdom. But he, so he, and again, that's kind of how I started up here talking, that if I loved you, I would preach out of my spirit, out of what he had me to tell you. So therefore, God can teach you and touch you with spiritual things, your spiritual people, so you can transform to them. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. So, and let's go over to... 1 Corinthians 8. 
just want to get a little bit of foundation of the spiritual soul versus the natural soul. Absolutely, uh, you know, if there is what you want to labor for, and I'm talking about laboring with grace, not laboring opposed to grace, is to know who you are out of your spirit and go on with God like that. Um, you must mortify that natural soul. You don't want that hanging around. You must keep that under. So 1 Corinthians 8, um, verses that are saying very similar things. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So knowledge puffs up. Knowledge understood out of the natural soul has no capacity to understand God, so it'll legalize the grace or it'll greasify the grace. Excuse me. But love edifies. Love, the three-dimensional child you are. God can speak three-dimensional things to you, your inheritance. You can transform to them, become them, walk in them, have a love relationship with him, actual child to actual father. Um, it's absolutely wonder wonderful. So, so again, that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So of course, we know the number one way, the first step in that path of love edifying is praying in tongues. Hallelujah, I just love that. Um, you know, and because think about it, again, back to my, my game show to tell the truth. The spiritual mind standing up saying, I'm the spiritual mind. Your natural mind standing up and saying, it's the spiritual mind. So you have... The spiritual mind and the natural mind, they're both saying they're the spiritual mind. Um, so you absolutely have to be able um, to tell the difference because whatever, whatever you bring up into your spiritual mind, your natural mind's right there getting the same thing. I could ask Robert, Robert, what's grace? And he'd give me a great answer. So as Robert's spiritual mind is saying the same words that the natural mind would use to talk about the grace, but they're two entirely different things. But he would use the exact same words. Hallelujah. You know, so what's interesting is if whatever's happening in the spiritual mind, whatever words it's understanding, the natural mind's right there too. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a way that God could somehow snatch away your spirit for a while and talk to you without your natural soul imitating what it was God talked to you about? I mean, if, the, if he told the spiritual mind something wonderful about grace, but the natural mind is right there saying the exact same words, but only legalizing them and greasifying them, gosh, what, I wonder if there's a way. God, is there some way you could pull me aside and talk to my spirit so my natural soul is left out? Hmm. Help me out here. Oh, my gosh. What a, I, I can't believe it. Is that actually in here? <laughs> Man, you know, so God wants to get your spirit alone, away from your natural soul, so he gives you what amounts to this gibberish language. You have no idea what you're saying. But what he's doing is he's passing over mysteries into your spirit, and when he builds you up by it, then he's going to give you a revelation of it when you have a capacity to receive it. But what he's built you up is, is he's teaching you. He's like, all right, boy, I'm going to now unleash this revelation that because you're born of my spirit, you have a capacity to receive it. You're going to receive it in a flash. And you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I just got a revelation. And over the next several 
you know, minutes, hours, or weeks, you're going to pull up this revelation into your spiritual mind. Think about it. You're going to write it down in your notebook. But as soon as you do that, you're going to have a natural soul that self-exalts itself as that spiritual mind, and it's right there with you. Oh, yes, this is some great stuff that I got from God. But because the Holy Spirit was able to snatch you away with that language that kept the natural soul out, he prepared you to defeat it uh, when it starts to imitate the spiritual mind. Amen? So let's jump over uh, to 2 Corinthians 10. Hallelujah. I want to keep an eye on the clock. You might be surprised that this is not my message. (laughs) You're like, oh, help them, Lord. (laughs) Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 10, verse uh, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Like in Luke 16, spiritual mind is inside the natural mind, the spiritual thoughts inside the natural thought, cell for cell, thought for thought, what the spirit thinks, the natural soul is right there thinking as well. But when he prepares you first through tongues, we, we know all the tools, the pillars, meditation and assimilation of his word, worship, fasting, is then that spiritual soul, you can, the spiritual thought, you are capable to now use that to pull down the natural soul thought, the spiritual thought, just like the spiritual, your spiritual eye is inside your natural eye, the spiritual thoughts inside the natural thought, but you're equipped to rise up and pull that down and take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen? Hallelujah, Jesus. And, and that word imaginations, we're going to see that here again in a minute. It only appears two places in the New Testament. Um, so now let's run over to um, Romans 2. Hallelujah, Jesus. course verses you're all familiar with but but it's amazing even if you hear something preached that you've heard a thousand times before you can get more out of it hearing it that thousand and one time I, I i don't know which one it was or whether it was gary or jim or alan when i was listening to some preaching coming down here i think it was jim and he talked about um giving thanks i mean it was something simple something we all realize always give thanks, you know, in the midst of all things. You know, we don't thank, of course, for the trouble, but in the midst of it. And Jim just said something like that, but I'm telling you, I got it deeper than I ever got it, and I've understood that for a million years. But man, I got it more. I mean, praise God. I just made my day. Um, So Romans 2, um, verse 14, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, These having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Now, 
that word thoughts is the same word as that imaginations in 2 Corinthians 10. It's the only two times this exact word is used. And, and praise God for the conscience. I, I have a confession I do. I stole from Pastor Dave. I remember him years ago saying, anything the new nature accuses, I do not excuse. But what's also in this verse is not just the new nature bearing witness and kind of standing over your thoughts, accusing and excusing. Um, man, praise God for a good conscience. I don't know about a lot of you, but I sold my conscience down the river and tell me, and let me tell you, you don't want to do that. Um, it, it was a long road back, but you can make it back. Amen. But what he's also saying in these verses is not just that the new nature is accusing or excusing your thoughts, but remember, the spiritual soul, the, the spiritual mind's inside the natural mind. So as your spiritual mind's equipped with a conscience, your natural soul is going to imitate that conscience, and it's going to start accusing and excusing, which is the legalized grace and the greasified grace. Um, so, so here you have the natural soul self-exalting itself as the spirit on top of your conscience, that accuses and excuses according to a perfect righteousness. Um, but the natural soul, as soon as you learn about your righteousness and your conscience, right there the natural soul thinks, okay, I'm righteousness, I'm the conscience, and it puts a layer of flesh right over your brand spanking new conscience. You know, so here you are born with perfect righteousness, a perfect conscience that just go ding, ding, ding at the slightest thing you're about to do that's not righteous. But your natural soul says, oh, I'm righteous. I have a conscience, but it can't receive from God. So its conscience is a legalized grace or a greasified grace. And so it lays that flesh right over your spirit. So right out of the get-go, your conscience is already being seared the first moment you start learning about righteousness and your conscience. Now, I'm not saying that's like an excuse to go out and fornicate tomorrow. No, that, that, that part of the conscience is still absolutely working because that is your born-again nature. Your, your born-again spirit is you don't habitually, blatantly sin. I mean, it's, it's light and darkness. Um, 1 John 3, 9, you know, if the, the seed remains in you, you do not sin. You know, which is kind of a funny verse. You're like, man, I don't really get what that means. And what it means is, if the seed of Christ is in you, that born-again nature, you don't habitually sin because if you are habitually sinning, that seed is no longer in you. Um, Galatians says something very similar after it talks about, you know, through the Spirit or the... Um, actually, let me get that right for you. Stay there in, in Romans. Actually, jump over to Galatians because we got all we wanted out of Romans. In Galatians 5, we will only be here a minute. But as it goes down, verse 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Of course, we're very familiar as we go down through here. You know, when it talks about the works of the flesh, anybody who's practicing these things, habitually doing them, you're not going to inherit. You're not born again. And, uh, but that, look at verse 24. Very similar thing to 1 John 3, 9. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So if you're Christ, you have crucified blatant habitual sin. 
that that's gone. You know, any, you know, again, the guy who's living with somebody the day before he gets born again, when he gets born again, he's driving back to his living situation. Of course, the conscience goes ding, ding, ding. Oh, my God, I can't do this anymore. You know, so that right there, that you've been mortify that, right? You're tempted to go back to a fornicating lifestyle, and then you don't do it, and it's mortified. One thing, uh, and I, it's kind of going to be a, a can of worms to some people, but you realize that grace is very law-like when it comes to blatant sin. We have this double mind where we put law over here and grace over here, and the double mind, again, it's out of the natural soul. Its false idea of the law is relative to the false idea of grace. Its understanding of grace is relative to its false understanding of law, you know, like being caught two lasers in a mirror. And, and you can't get out of it because, let me tell you something, grace is very law-like. When I am writing in my notes and the Holy Spirit is ministering to me about this, I probably, like a lot of you, have a, a shorthand, you know, when you're whipping through on your notes. And I put N-N-W-W, new nature, will worship. Now we know, not will worship, new nature, grace, we know these are two different things. But when it comes to blatant sin, your new nature is exactly like what you would think the law in will worship is. Thou shall not fornicate, you better not fornicate. It is extremely law-like. Paul says in Timothy that of talking about um, the law is for the lawless. You know, so absolutely grace is very law-like <clears throat> when it comes to blatant sin because there's no such thing as legalism when it comes to fornication. Oh, that's legalism. No, no, no. There's no such thing as legalism. Absolutely stop now. There, there is no, um, yeah, so hallelujah. Now, as you move past the deal breaker stuff, which of course, that's, that's before you get to kindergarten. Day one, all that stuff is gone. Um, the problem is, is people still have, um, deal with a stronghold because again, the new, the uh, natural soul is laying flesh because knowledge puffs up over your conscience. So as you progress on with God, man, transforming is absolutely wonderful. It's a, um, a father-son relationship. It's a chastising and a comfort. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful man, when you get past um, all the, the de not just the deal-breaking, that goes easy, but when you push past and transform um, the strongholds um, that make you think you're still in a de deal-breaker situation when you're not. So it is totally different. It's absolutely wonderful. God wants to chastise you as a child and he wants to comfort you and that's what makes a child is that if his father chastises him if you don't receive the chastisement hebrews 12 says you're an orphan now that that's not that means you're heading on a road outside of being born again man take the chastisement because chastisement is so wonderful in the single mind in the single mind right we oftentimes if we let our natural soul define being chastised by God to be okay I've done something wrong and God God's going like that because he wants me to do something right no, no no listen the single mind is if you're doing something wrong God wants to chastise you to do it right but if you're doing something right God is also chastising you to stay doing right do you see how it becomes one simple thing to you 
Either way, it's the chastisement, and either way, you go on with God, and either way, you get out of your problem, and it doesn't even matter if it's a perceived problem or a real problem. That whole double mind of, okay, is it a problem, is it not a problem, is done away with in the single mind of being his child because he's going to chastise you if you're wrong to do right, and he's going to chastise you if you're right to stay right. That may, I love single mind. I love one thing, not two. Man, the devil's got you if there's two. If it's, oh, I got the presence of God today, but I don't have the presence of God tomorrow. No, 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 no. That, that dog's not going to hunt. You always have the presence of God. You know, and the more you're fully persuaded of that, that you no longer, it does not matter if you feel it or not, you absolutely have it. And then you just, man, you go then. The single mind, that is a dangerous person who has a single mind. Amen? Yes. Hallelujah. So I think we've laid enough foundation. Let's uh, jump over to um, keep an eye on the time here. Oh, we got lots of time. <laughs> 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 I'm actually surprised that I figured that would have been like 8.40 by now or something. So, uh, what's that? Oh, <laughs> you know, I feel kind of uh, blessed that I get uh, heckled by uh, Corey. I kind of wear that as a badge of honor. <laughs> Pastor's like, don't encourage him, don't encourage him. So, uh, first John. Um, so I was, I was here the last time and want to touch on that again. Um, one John one eight, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we want to look at verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 8, if we presently say we have no sin. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. You know, the perfect tense, talking about something in the past that's happened. It's perfect, it's complete, and it has present results. So those two verses very simply are, if now, as a Christian, you are saying you have no sin, what, you're, what you are doing is you're saying sin is not a problem now. In other words, what I'm doing habitually sinning-wise is not a problem. You know, however you justify it to yourself. Oh, God understands my heart. Oh, it's all by grace. Oh, he died for my sin. I love that one where, oh, he died for my sin. Well, if he died for your sin, that means he's dead and so are you. Oh, no, brother, he rose. Well, he rose for righteousness, so you should be walking righteous. Oh, no, I don't have to, brother, because he died for my sin. Well, if he died for your sin, he's dead and so are you. Oh, no, but he rose again. Okay, well, he rose for righteousness, so you should be doing it. <laughs> you know, and that's what First John is addressing. First John just totally eviscerates that argument. Um, hallelujah. So, so what you're saying presently, if sin is not a big deal, is, well, if sin is not a big deal now, that means it wasn't a big deal five years ago when I got born again. So why get born again? And that's why at that point he says in verse 10, we make God a liar. Here God has given this testimony throughout the entire Old Testament and the gospel 
that he sent Jesus to do away with sin, but because you're presently saying sin is okay, that means sin was okay back before you got born again, so why even get born again, which is saying, God, you're a liar. You sent Jesus to deliver us from sin, but you didn't even need to do that because sin is not a problem for me now, so it wasn't a problem for me before I got saved, so why get born again? That's what that verse is saying. And, and of course, we know that people saying um, that you don't with your mouth have necessarily have to deny Jesus, right? You do it with your actions. And um, you guys can stay there. I stay in First John. I'll shoot over to a verse in um, Titus, one you're all familiar with. Verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. So you can have Jesus on your lips all day long if you're habitually sinning. Of course, you've left the real Jesus. You've transitioned to an idol Jesus. And, and we know how um, that works. So um, in 1 John what the issue these guys that John was writing was they were um, doing away with the fact that Jesus had a body. In other words, if they can somehow say Jesus did not have a body, that that excuses them not to walk righteous in their body. So John jumps in right from the beginning to establish Jesus had a body. Uh, verse 1, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested. We have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Right off the bat, he wants to let people know Jesus had a body. What was beginning to creep into the church um, is... Something, it's called Gnosticism, which, of course, really didn't come on the scene. Church history tells us for like another 100, 150 years. But this is where it, it is beginning. Um, something called uh, docetism, based on a Greek word for it seems. Uh, what started coming on the scene, and of course, much later than this, but it, it started right here, and that was, it only seemed like Jesus had a body. That it was kind of like a fa phantasm or... I, I, Phantom, maybe that's the word. Um, phantom, that only seemed like he had a body. So eventually that doctrine spread. Um, another one was Jesus um, left his body at the cross. So therefore, um, he wasn't, that there is no glorified body. You see that in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in 2 Timothy 2. One of them says there is no resurrection from the dead, no bodily resurrection. The other one says the resurrection's already passed. What these people were doing is as you accept sin, you have to do away with Jesus' body because if he had a body and walked righteous in it, yeah. that means we walk righteous in our body. So that's what John uh, is dealing with. And let's jump over to um, chapter 4. I believe we can go here next. I'm really trying to get to 5. <clears throat> um, 1 John 4. Beloved, believe, uh, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets 
are gone out into the world. Hereby know we the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Pardon me while I get a drink here. Again, verse 3. And every spirit that confesses not, I, was I at three? Okay, let's go with two and then we'll work our way down. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard, and it should come, and even now already is it in the world. And of course, trying the spirits means um, anybody who's claiming to be a Christian. Um, If you confess that Jesus Christ um, has come in the flesh, of course, you have a lot of people in radical grace that will still confess with their mouth, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But if you're not walking righteous, you're denying him in your actions. What um, Christianity is when it believes that Jesus came in the flesh It means that Jesus was God. And, of course, that's another way people try to get rid of Jesus' body is they say when he came and walked on earth in a body, he did so as God, which is a clever workaround to get to the same place of Jesus didn't have a body, so therefore I don't have to walk righteous in mine. You know, so that's another way they do it. But when, when we trust in Jesus Christ, what we trust in is Almighty God became a man, uh, born through a virgin, with a body, lived righteous and never sinned 33 and a half years, died as our substitute, and then rose again, was glorified back into that same body. Thomas, put your finger in the holes in my hand, put your hand in my side. And, you know, so again, born into a body, walked righteous, died as our substitute, and then, of course, rose again in that same body, now glorified, which means we should be walking righteous as well. Um, so that's how you try the spirits because, of course, you know, Pastor Bronk in this church, Homer, of course, our circle of churches, you know, almost every week just about they're trying the spirits because when you communicate that that's what a Christian is, guess what? Anybody wants to pursue, pursue radical grace, they're going to have to leave your church, which is what John said, you know, they... They were of us, you know, but they left us. You know, let me jump back and get that right. Verse 19, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You know, so when you try the spirits like that, they'll either repent and get on board with you or they'll be forced to leave. Amen? So, and before I go to five, <clears throat> now here's kind of where I want to, where I was thinking I, I might have to hide as you guys throw rocks on me. Let, let's go back to 1 John 1. Um, thank you, Lord. So in verse eight, if we say that we have no sin. Now we understand that, of course, in blatant habitual sin, if you say you have no sin, you mean, oh, it's okay what I'm doing, whatever excuse you're giving yourself. You know, again, God loves me. God understands his mercy. Oh, he died for sin. However you want to frame it, when it says that if we say we have no sin, is you're excusing sin. But the reason I took all those verses to establish 
your spiritual mind inside your natural mind. And as soon as your spiritual mind starts thinking about the revelation it got, the natural soul is right there thinking about it. So as soon as you begin learning that you are perfectly righteous and have a perfect conscience, the natural soul is imitating that in self-exaltation and it's putting its own righteousness and its own idea of a conscience on top of your righteousness and your conscience. Um, I remember reading years ago that, and I think it's in this down in this part of Florida with the alligators, that what, like I think it's fire ants, that they'll build their nest, the fire ants will build their mound on top of the eggs of baby alligators. And as soon as those alligators hatch, the ants whoop, drop right down in there and eat them. I mean, it's brutal. You know, so the natural soul with its imitation righteousness, imitation conscience, it's sitting right on top of your righteousness and your conscience right from day one. Now, I'm not saying that's an excuse to anybody to go deal break. No, no, no. If you do that, you're doing it because you want to and you'll end up in the lake of fire. But still on those, um, remember the blueprint prophecies where it said to go, go all the way to the end, all those things past the entrance um, of those deal breakers. Again, all that stops from day one, but getting rid of all the other stuff because immediately your natural soul is imitating righteousness and your conscience. And if you don't know how to tell the difference, you're going to be led astray. So also when it says in verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, that is also talking about people who have the revelation that when you're born again, you're absolutely free from sin, which is absolutely true. But when your natural soul says, I'm absolutely free from sin, it's puffed up with knowledge laying over that perfect freedom you have with an imitation freedom. So even though you're saying, I am perfectly free of sin, you know, which is what pastors talked about before, where if somebody starts preaching that you don't need the Holy Spirit anymore because you're so set free from sin, that is error. And I'm not trying to throw stones, I'm certainly not throwing stones and being set free from sin. Absolutely, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed me from the law of sin and death. I mean, that is a, a done deal, um, right? You know, our Bibles fall open to Romans 8. But it still doesn't change the fact that you have a natural soul that your spirit, your natural mind, your spiritual mind is in. And when you begin learning how free from sin you are and you stop all deal breaker stuff, you still have a natural soul on top of that, a natural mind with its self-exalted self idea of righteousness and a conscience. And it's beginning right there to legalize and greasify. So all right to a little bit, your conscience is being seared in the small ways, right? I'm not saying you're watching pornography or rated R movies, but maybe you're watching a PG movie and, and maybe your conscience is saying don't, but your understanding of grace puffed up in the natural soul is already seared that to just a little bit. Now, again, this isn't go to hell type stuff, but it's stuff that you got to take the Holy Spirit through all the tools that we do and pursue and keep going farther because that path is in you so when you say we have no sin, it's also talking about people who say they are absolutely free by the new birth from sin. John's still talking about them as well because you can still build that path all the way back out of God. Um, real quick, let's go over to Romans 8. I want to touch on one thing and then get into my message. But, <laughs> but 
I, I mean, I'll do what the Holy Spirit has me do, but I have no indication that this is going to be a late night. I'm just toying with you guys. <laughs> but then again, this is like vacation for me. I'm, I'm here for a few days, so. No, no, I know you guys are working. So, um, of course, we know Romans 8, walking after the flesh, walking after the unregenerated nature, you know, that uh, is not free from sin, that that is the flesh, walking after the spirit, is that born-again life. So I'm not going to go all through verse 8, but I want to notice that that definition, we're going to change a little bit. Now, not me changing it, the Holy Spirit. Um, so let's start with verse 9, Romans 8, 9. But ye are not in the flesh. You're not a sinner. But in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, now here, when he talks about flesh, he is not just talking about the old nature of not being born again. Notice verse 12, brethren. He's talking to born-again people. So you born-again brethren, if you live after the flesh. So he's not talking specifically about the dead nature. He's talking about is if you follow sin, you're going to follow a path back to that dead nature. So the flesh is not only spiritual death, the spiritually dead nature, but it's also the path back to that spiritually dead nature once you've been born again. Amen? But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. That born-again righteousness, right, that temptation to commit fornication, you, your, body is, is, your body is quickened as soon as your spirit says no, your body no longer can rule and reign over you and make you do what you don't want to do. You can mortify that and do the righteous thing. Amen? All right, so let's go back to uh, 1 John 5, and we'll get more to my message. Hallelujah. You know, so again, John is addressing people trying to get rid of Jesus' body. Because if they can get rid of his body, they can excuse themselves to sin in their body. <clears throat> um, gosh, I just love these uh, verses in here. Let's, uh, 1 John 5, 5. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. What is water and blood? Water and blood is the simplest, quickest way to preach the gospel. If you say, tell me the gospel in the fewest words possible, say, okay, Jesus came by water and blood. Came by water as he was almighty God who thought it not robbery to step away from his godhood. He didn't consider that being robbed. He humbled himself, stepped away from his godhood, became a man, born, Mary's water broke, born righteous inside a body capable of sin, lived his whole life without sin, died as our substitute, rose from the dead back into that body now glorified, and 
So when it says he came by water, he came righteous. The father had life in himself. He gave to the son to have life in himself. We know he gave back that life to him at the resurrection, but he first gave that life to him when he was inside, conceived in the womb of Mary, and Mary gave him his body, born of water, born with a body capable of sin, yet didn't. And then, of course, we see that he was also born by blood, which means after he lived his sinless life and died as our substitute and paid the price in hell, he was born again by his own righteous blood, born from the dead, back into his body, now glorified, born of blood. Now, here's the part that I just absolutely love, and it's the spirit that bears witness. If my King James has a capital S, that is not a capital S. That is a little s. It's the spirit that bears witness. It's talking about your born-again spirit because as soon as you hear and accept that Jesus came by water and blood, your spirit is quickened. Your spirit bearing witness that Jesus came by water and blood, your spirit bearing witness and accepting the gospel, the split second you believe it um, and start to form that sinner's prayer, you go from death to life. Those words come pushed out of your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Your spirit has borne witness that Jesus came by water and blood. So that is not the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to the Holy Spirit in a minute. That is your spirit. Um, when, when you were a sinner and Jesus got into your presence, uh, uh, let's shoot over there real quick to um, 2 Corinthians 3. I know there's a lot of turning. 2 Corinthians 3. When Jesus got in your presence, he, he lit your world. He lit your spirit on credit, so to speak. And when your spirit now lit on credit, you could now see him as Lord. In the split second, you confessed him as Lord. That light he lit you with becomes officially yours, and you become born again. Now, we're not going to go all through that, but I want to get to one point. Um, Let's look at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3, 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. What Paul's done here is he's, he's playing a clever game with words. The Lord is that spirit, and then he says where the spirit of the Lord is. If you held up in a mirror, and you can do this when you get home, the Lord is that spirit, what you're going to see in the reflection is spirit of the Lord. Now, I know the letters will be backwards, um, but go with me. Where, as you're looking at it, the Lord is that spirit, in a mirror, you're going to see the spirit first. And then the Lord. So that's what he's saying about looking into a mirror, that when you, when Jesus, the Lord is that spirit, when he lights your, wor your world and you look into his face, the Lord is that spirit, and you responding to it is the spirit of the Lord, and you get born again. So the Lord is that spirit. The reflection of that is the spirit of the Lord, my born-again spirit of the Lord. Um, but do that, because this that, will really um, seal in you. Just write, the Lord is that spirit, and put it into a mirror, and you'll see spirit, Lord. So on this side, it says, Lord, spirit, in the image in the mirror, spirit, Lord. Um, so I love uh, when Paul uh, 
does stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Um, so let's go back to 1 John 5. So your spirit has borne witness that Jesus came by water and blood, and that's what caused you to go from death to life. Your spirit has bore witness that's true in what happens with pursuing a path that leads to more and more sin is you begin to destroy that, right? Because the problem with First John is they were saying, oh, Jesus really didn't have a body, so they could excuse themselves walking sinful in theirs. Now they're changing this story of water and blood. And we're going to see the, how very dangerous that is. Um, verse 7, for there are three <coughs> that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's the Godhead. That's the Creator. You know, the uh, first member of the Godhead planned it all. The second member of the Godhead is the spoken word, the mighty Logos. He spoke the command, and the Holy Spirit was the one that went out and did it. You take away any of those three and nothing gets created. You know, the father can plan it all he wants and while the father's planning it, of course, he's always known it. The Holy Spirit knows the father's planning something, but until the second member of the Godhead, that spoken word, the Holy Spirit's not going to do nothing. He's just going to sit there, even though he knows exactly what the father wants to do, but until it's spoken. So uh, what he's saying here is the uh, creative work of the Godhead. Um, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, first member, second member, third member of the Godhead. Um, these three are one. Pardon me while I get a drink. Hallelujah. <clears throat> and verse 8, and, and we're going to come back to verse 7 because verse 7 is a big part of the meat of this message. Um, verse 8, and there are three that bear witness in the earth. The spirit, little s, not big s. The spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Because again, you became that born again spirit when you agreed to the gospel. When you agreed to water and blood, your spirit bore witness. And so these three are one. So if we receive the witness of men, meaning the gospel, meaning Jesus came by water and blood, if we receive that witness, we at the same time are receiving a greater witness. Keep reading. The witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. So you have the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These are one. What is also one is the water, the blood, and the born-again Spirit. So if now you're changing the gospel story to excuse yourself to sin, what you're doing is destroying that three-in-one witness that made you born again because you are destroying the greater witness of what the father has testified of the son the entire old testament in the gospel is the testimony of the father sent a son so that is the greater witness because again back to the first chapter if if you're excusing yourself to do sin now presently that means sin wasn't a problem before you got born again. So why get born again? Which means, God, you're a liar. Why did you even send Jesus to do away with sin when sin's obviously not a problem? So the reason you're in trouble is because the greater witness, not only the witness of men, the gospel, that Jesus came by water and blood, but when you accept that, behind that was the greater witness, the story God spoke of his son, 
you're saying that is not true. God, you're a liar. And, uh, and this may shock some of you, but do you realize it is impossible for sin to send the Christian to hell? I'll say it again. Sin does not send the Christian to hell because the covenant is not with you. The first covenant God made with Jesus and it was fulfilled at the cross and that fulfilled covenant is what is in all of our spirits in here if we're born again. And that means Ananias and Sapphira, remember they lied about the offering? So not only did they lie about the offering, but when they were confronted by it, they doubled down and said, oh yeah, that was it. Boom, they dropped dead. They never repented, but we know they're in heaven. You know, Adam, Adam, sinned, Adam sinned once and boom, spiritual death. How come we can sin and yet we're not spiritually dead the split second we do? Say you have a, a drug addict who's not justifying it, but, uh, but he gets overcome emotionally and he goes back to drugs. We're talking a Christian here, but he dies of an overdose. That guy doesn't repent. Is he going to hell? No. Because sin does not send you to hell because the covenant in your spirit that is spiritual life is a covenant the Father made with the Son and it's fulfilled. It's absolutely impossible. What sends you to hell is as soon as your natural soul grabs hold of the fact that sin doesn't send you to hell, the natural soul then uses that as an excuse to sin and that's what sends you to hell because that is you destroying the greater witness in you, the testimony the father gives of his son that I have sent Jesus to free you from sin. But you're saying, God, you're a liar because sin is not a problem now because if sin doesn't send me to hell, that means I can excuse myself to sin. Well, if sin's not a problem now, it means it wasn't a problem before I got born again, so why get born again? So it's not the sin that sends you to hell. It's you excusing yourself to sin that sends you to hell. Think of your spiritual life as a jug of water. And if you sin, picture a, a knife being jabbed into that jug and your spiritual life running out. The reason that does not happen is because you're a jug of water. You're inside a bathtub of water, which is the covenant that the Father made with Jesus. It's the first covenant. The first covenant that is fulfilled and that fulfilled first covenant gets put inside you when you accept the second covenant. He says, when you come to me, I'll write these laws into your heart. What God is saying is the first covenant is fulfilled. Jesus dotted every I, crossed every T, did it perfect. And when you accept the second covenant, this first covenant becomes a last will and testament that Jesus died to give that inheritance, and then rose to be in you. So when you accept the second covenant, you receive the fact that the first covenant is already fulfilled in you. You've inherited from that last will and testament. Now there is no covenant. A child of God has no covenant. The first and the second completely fulfilled. The second covenant has made the first covenant a last will and testament. And when Jesus died, he mediated that over to you and then rose to be in you that covenant. So the reason sin doesn't send you to hell, like when you hit the knife in that jug, your, your life doesn't spill out like it did with Adam, is because you are, that jug is inside a bathtub full of water. And the pressure of the first covenant that the Father made with Jesus, it keeps your spiritual life in you, which is why the drug addict can die and still go to heaven. Now, I'm not talking about people excusing themselves to sin. That absolutely will send you to hell because that's you taking a sledgehammer to the bathtub, right? You can have a problem in your jug 
Listen, a, a, a person can have any kind of problem. God will walk through hell with you on your problem. You can sin the same sin each day for a thousand days. But listen, if you are not excusing it, you're fine. But the glory of this righteousness that we have is if you're not excusing the sin, it's because you're accepting the fact that you're free, which means you stop. You know, so even if you are having trouble, my God, repent and then go sleep like a baby. You are absolutely fine because the sin is not going to damn you, but it's you letting your natural soul come up with some kind of doctrine that says, well, if sin doesn't send me to hell, then I can excuse myself to sin. No, ma'am, no, sir. That's destroying the bathtub. That's destroying in you the first covenant that the father made with the son, and you're calling God a liar, and you will be lost forever if you do that. So back to verse 7, talking about the greater witness is the witness the father gives of the son. So the father, the word, the Holy Ghost, first member of the Godhead, second member of the Godhead, third member of the Godhead. I'm watching my time. Um, let's go to Galatians 3. See, it's all my devious plan because if I don't finish, it forces Bronx to have to bring me back. <coughs> Galatians 3. Remember how Pastor Bronk the other day was talking about how this book is a small book? That these guys and gals, that everybody who had anything to do with it, um, well, I guess mostly the men writing it, but it's not to the exclusion of any of the ladies, obviously. Um, but that he said very simple statements that just pack a powerful punch. But he said them very simply. Galatians 3.20, now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. It's idea, if you have any idea what's inside that, and of course, this is born again trail stuff. Um, but it's amazing how simple that is, but inside that is just volumes and volumes. And of course, if you go to any commentary, you know, they'll tell you, oh, Moses was the mediator of the Old Testament. But that's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Remember 1 John 5, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. God is one. So the Father and the Son, of course, at this point in eternity's past, they're not known as the Father and the Son. First member of the Godhead, the second member of the Godhead. They are one. They have this love for each other that they want to communicate to us. They, um, I mean, they are so one. I mean, if you scratch number two's back, number one feels it, right? You know, eyeball to eyeball, shoulder to shoulder, co-equal, three and one. They are one. But in order to get us, I call it the Godhead of love, that they want to come down and scoop us up into this Godhead of love, not divinity like they are, but equal in love, they're like, okay, well, number one and number two, we're up here in love, just making googly eyes at each other, squished together. You know, how are we going to get down there and scoop those people up? Oh, I know. Hey, Abraham, come here. Come here, Abraham. And Abraham comes up, you know, and sees number one, making googly eyes at number two, and Abraham rolls his eyes, and it's like, oh, you two in your love relationship, right? And you know I'm having a little fun with this. But what does Abraham do? Number one is like, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make promises to you that when you believe them, it's going to give me authority in the earth not to come and directly answer those promises that I've promised to you, 
but through you believing them, I'm going to promise through you to number two, who through your faith is going to get a body. So he's Abraham, come up here. I need you to mediate a covenant between the Godhead so we can take on the roles for salvation. So when Abraham mediated throughout the Old Testament in his, in his lineage, of course, David had a hand in this, Moses did, you know, people believing the Redeemer to come. They're all mediating this covenant. So at this point, then you have the Father and the Son. As soon as Jesus comes on the scene, this God is one. They've taken on the roles of salvation, the Father and then the Son. Jesus has become a person. And Abraham is the one mediating that covenant, which is giving Jesus that body because these promises that God is making to Abraham because Abraham can't keep his end of the covenant. He's really making them through Abraham to Jesus who's going to keep it. And then when he rises from the dead, that is the Old Testament completely fulfilled. That God has fulfilled this first covenant. And so let's run over to John 17. And also what I can do, which will help because it will allow us to get out of here a little bit earlier. The Lord has me do teaching videos almost once a week, and I've done one. Um, John 17, the Father loves you with the same love he loves Jesus with. It's about an hour long. I do a little bit of a review of a message I did on radical grace, but then I break all this down. I assure you I'm not saying this for my benefit. I break this down much further on, um, on that teaching. If You'll be blessed if you find it on YouTube. Michael Church is the name. It'll um, give you a little bit more. So let's go to John 17. So we have the first member and the second member now have become father and son. And this ties in with 1 John 5, the greater witness, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, because we're showing how the Creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit put this new life in you. So, John 17. Hallelujah. Help me bring this home, Holy Spirit. <clears throat> A little bit more water here. So, John 17, <clears throat> verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was before the world was it is no father and son just first member of the Godhead and second member of the Godhead and the first member of the Godhead is not giving the second member of the Godhead anything number one is not giving any glory to number two because they are all three are co-equal one is not giving one to the other. When he says, Father, glorify thou me with thy own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was, the reason he's asking as being submitted to the Father is because he's asking as a man. He's, he's praying to take me back to the position of Godhead. You know, so when it comes to Father and Son, yes, the Father gives to the Son life. Because the whole reason that the divinity became Father, Son 
was because they wanted to scoop us up back into that oneness that they've always had with each other, which is why, now don't turn there, I'll go there real quick. So again, they want to scoop us up into this love relationship they've had for eternity. They want us in that same position, which is, if you keep reading down on Galatians, and I touched on this a couple years ago, but I didn't go into it. Um, verse 28, uh, you don't have to turn there. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. Uh, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, not only one with each other, but in Christ, scooped up one back into, again, I call it the Godhead of love. You're not divinity, but co-equal in love, the love that number one, two, and three have always had for each other. I know we're just talking about number one and two. That love they've always had, they want to scoop us up back into it. So through Abraham mediating the old covenant, gave Jesus a body so that Jesus could become a man and walk around in that same bosom of the Father that he had when he was God, when they were one with each other. Uh, John uh, chapter 1 talks about... Um, of Jesus being in the bosom of the Father. John chapter 3 says, you know, no man goes up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. At that same point that Jesus is on earth, he's in heaven. He has that same oneness that number one and number two have. He's having that same relationship of love as when he was God, but now he's having it as a man because he wants to let us all know, I'm going to prepare a place for you so you can come into that same oneness, that same bosom of the Father. Isn't that awesome? I, I'm just, I love being a Christian. I love being loved by him. That one love that the Godhead has for each other, he loves us the same way. He loves us the same way that he loves Jesus. Amen? So let's see that again a little bit more in... Uh, Verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. So again, this now is a glory that the Father gave the Son, which means we're not talking about glory of Godhood. No, the glory of being a son, being equal in the same love that divinity has for each other. We're all absolutely equal in that love. And that's the glory that the Father gave Jesus. Remember, as God, they don't give each other glory. They are God. They don't give each other anything. Um, so that he wants us to, we behold that glory, and then we go to that same place, that same glory is given to us, the same life, the same love relationship. For thou loveth me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, they were divinity. They were one. They were loving each other before the foundation of the world, but of course they came into the world, Jesus becoming, or number two, becoming Jesus, becoming a man, so he can receive us to that same place, take us back into that Godhead of love. So I already can tell I am not going to get to the end of my message, but I can give you the short stuff. Um, so how did he do it? So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each taking their roles um, in redemption. So the Father has made promises through the Son, through Abraham being the mediator. 
Those promises were fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. You know, Jesus has life in his spirit. He has the capacity to know God. He starts reading the Old Testament. And we know from, I think it's Psalm 40, and also Hebrews talks about it. He says, in the volume of the book that was written of me. You know, sacrifices God took no pleasure in. So Jesus is finding out that all this was talking about him, that he would be the sacrifice and that he would fulfill it all. And and actually, I'm going to go there so I can read it. I don't want to mess this up. Hallelujah. So Hebrews. So Hebrews 10, 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. So what he's doing here is in Jesus rising from the dead after dotting every I and crossing every T, keeping the law perfect, fulfilling his end of the covenant, that when the Father raised him from the dead, the first covenant was fulfilled. So now he can establish the second covenant. The second covenant is, is the gospel. If you come to me, God says, I will write all this into your heart. So now we have, in, in terms of uh, creator, father, uh, or excuse me, number one, number two, number three, the father, the word, the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, first member of the Godhead, the word, and the Holy Spirit. So now we see two members of the Godhead, two out of the three that it takes to create, that they have done their part. The Father has made promises to the Son. The Son has uh, dotted every I, crossed every T. The Father has raised the Son from the dead. The Father has fulfilled the first covenant. So you now have the first member and the second member of this three-person team it takes to create everything, to create anything. They have now done their part in creating new life in us because they have fulfilled the first covenant. So now the Holy Spirit comes in because now when, when we hear the second covenant, which is the gospel, when we come to God and respond to the gospel, he takes this fulfilled first covenant and puts it into our spirit. The Holy Spirit goes into your spirit and quickens it from death to life. I believe it's John 20 when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. We know he's not talking about Pentecost Holy Ghost, but receive the work of the Holy Ghost that's actually going to take your guy's spirits from death to life. So now we have the three parts of the Godhead in play creating that born-again life. The fathers fulfilled the covenant to the son. When you accept the second covenant, you receive the fulfilled first covenant in you. Now you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three doing a work in your born-again life. And again, so when the water, the blood, and the born-again spirit agree in one, when you start changing that story by excusing sin, what you're changing is the greater witness that number one gives of number two when they became father and son. The entire Old Testament and the gospel, the story, the testimony that God the Father gives of his son, you are destroying in you that greater witness. Again, the sin doesn't send you to hell. Your jug is in a bathtub of water. So again, you're fine. If you sin, even if you died without repenting, you would go to heaven.
But as soon as you make a lifestyle and excuse that fact, you're now destroying in you the fulfilled first covenant that the Father has with the Son, and you will be doomed. Amen? Hallelujah. Now, there's probably some more in there I could have filled that in with. Let me just see if there's anything I absolutely need to get to right now. Hallelujah, Jesus. Is there anything else, Lord? Okay, I got a couple minutes. Let me touch on something. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah, I got to touch on this, but I won't keep you long. Um, chapter 6, Hebrews. Gosh, wonderful stuff. Of course, we could go all through here, and it would be wonderful, but we're going to have to skip a lot of that. Um, verse 16, Hebrews 6, 16. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immu immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Now, this is where... Um, you know, it's good to, to um, have a Greek dictionary to find out the words in Greek because that word confirmed is, uh, is very misleading in, in the English. You know, King James, when they read this in the Greek, you know, they're trying to do the best they can. But that word confirmed breaks down to a word that means uh, mediator, mediating. So do you like Abraham mediated the first covenant? Jesus mediates the second covenant, right? You know, so Abraham mediated the first in giving Jesus a body, Jesus in mediating the second, he mediates over to us the spirit, the born-again spirit. So, so instead of confirmed, it's mediated. Um, wherein God, willing more abundantly, reading this again, verse 17, to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, mediated it by an oath. Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. So what are the two immutable things? The promise and the oath. The promise is the promise God the Father made to Jesus, God the Son, that he fulfilled when he rose from the dead. That is the promise. The second immutable thing is the oath, and the oath that is swore is when you accept the fulfilled first covenant, that promise is put in you. The two immutable things, the fulfilled first covenant is mediated over to you through God's oath, which is another covenant term, and then that life comes into you. The accepting of the second covenant is what is mediated into you is the fulfilled first covenant. The promise and the oath, two immutable things. The promise, again, is the covenant made to Jesus, fulfilled when he rose him from the dead, and then God swore an oath which then put that fulfilled first covenant in you. And if you're scratching your head and saying, well, Mike, that sounds good, but I really don't know if that's what the oath is, real quick, run over to chapter 7. And again, I could uh, show you some words in here to show you that he's still staying on the same subject, but we're going to skip that. Um, 7, uh, 20. Inasmuch as not without an oath, again, He's mediated the fulfilled first covenant over to you by an oath. When you accepted the gospel, Jesus mediated over to you that born-again spirit. So inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made a priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, 
by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is the high priest? Who is Melchizedek? He is Jesus. That's the oath. The oath, I swear and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is the oath God is swearing that's taking that fulfilled promise that when Jesus rose from the dead was fulfilled in him and putting all that in you through your high priest, Jesus, who not only was the high priest, but he was the lamb being offered. So all that life through this oath gets mediated over to you. In verse 22, something I preached on a couple years ago, but I only scratched the surface of it. By so much was Jesus made the surety of a better testament. The surety, the fulfilled first covenant in you is God's guarantee that you cannot and will not fail. And even if you did fail when it comes to sin, sin does not separate you from God. It's, it's excusing sin that separates you from God. You have a surety if you failed, your surety has you, but he has you so much because you have become one that you don't even have to fail. Now we know, obviously know that with deal breaker sin, but anything else that God calls us to do, we're a bunch of revivalists in here, this surety of a better testament, the fulfilled first covenant in you, for example, when you trust God, you're trusting God with his very own faithfulness because it's already fulfilled in you. The first covenant that he's already fulfilled in Christ has already won the ball game. That victory is already put inside you and now you're just walking it out. If you, we went back to 1 John 5, we could go to, um, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Because as long as you don't excuse your life away and by faith walk with him, that, that God's own faithfulness in you is what's coming to the fore, which makes God the perfect judge that when you go to God on judgment day and say, oh, well, God, revival was just too hard. I couldn't do it. He'll be like, nope, he won't even hear it because the fulfilled first covenant life is in you, which means revival is a finished work in us, and Jesus is the surety of a better covenant. We can go on with him absolutely never failing. Amen? Amen. Praise God, and back to you, Pastor Brown. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. It was one thing that Mike said in the beginning. I was thinking about that uh, it was different, but it was still it bore witness in that grace concerning deal breaker sins has a uh, legalistic disposition. In other words, deal breaker, some of you may not understand if you're just coming in on, we're talking about sins that uh, if you habitually do them will send you to hell, like fornication, if you don't repent from them, those kinds of things, adultery. But when, when, grace, when grace comes to you in those kinds of things, uh, it doesn't, when you are born again and born of his spirit it doesn't come you know it's so true what he said it doesn't come with a uh, it comes with a legal kind of disposition 
And somebody said, is that right? Yeah, because the law of the spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus has set us so free that it doesn't come with a suggestion. It doesn't come with a, it comes with a, a legalistic like, no, don't do that. That'll send you to hell. Don't do that. Don't habitually do that. So it does have a kind of a disposition of, so we appreciate Mike coming, don't we? Hallelujah. And uh, he got, uh, he, he said in the beginning, he said, this isn't even my message. <laughs> well, I was praying today. He had just uh, not have his message. You know, Alan Taylor said Dave uh, would deliberately talk to him. You know, they traveled a lot. And Dave would just sit there and talk to him right before he was trying to go out there and just talk to him about all kind of stuff knowing that he was trying to rehearse in his mind his notes because Dave didn't believe in preparing for a message. He just believed in, you know, staying in the spirit and listening to God. So he trained Alan that way. So he'd aggravate Alan. Alan would be trying to sit there thinking, and Alan said, Dave would keep talking to him. So we meditate. Yeah, we, we prepare in that sense of the word. But did you know how important it is to listen? He said, when they bring you in, when they bring you in to give some kind of testimony about because you're being persecuted, he said, don't even, don't even the night before, don't even the day of contemplate what you're supposed to say because it will be given to you in that hour. It'll be given to you. That's how much. And we appreciate Mike listening. So hallelujah, let's all stand. Thank you for coming tonight. And those of you that are watching, we've uh, we apologize. We're, 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 we understand that uh, our glitches now are a laptop situation, but we will have that remedied in the next few days. Thank you for staying with us. We love you so much. God, thank you for Lord uh, Mike and the ministry of your word, and we thank you for your grace. We bless and we thank you, Lord, for those that have been attentive. And, and Lord, we thank you for all the blessings of your presence and your word tonight. God bless this group and all watching in Jesus' name. Amen.